St. Thomas Aquinas lived in the 1200s. He is credited for leaving an introductory to philosophy work, uh, the Summa Theologica, and it is introductory for those that have read it or studied it. We might be overwhelmed in thinking that it's only introductory uh, because it takes it's pretty thorough and it takes up a good space on your bookshelf if you have it or, or uh, Kindle. It's, it's huge uh, megabytes uh, and it's, it's a wonderful document. It's a wonderful writing and it is said that while he was uh, dictating that and other works, Summa Contra Gentiles and some other meditations on the Gospel of John and Matthew and the Our Father and all these things, that he would do so by having four different secretaries. He would dictate one line to one secretary. He'd go to another completely different section or different uh, different writing and all together and dictate another line. He kept all four secretaries busy at the same time. This was a man who was brilliant. In his Summa Theologica itself, he quotes scripture more than any, almost any other uh, saint, uh, percentage-wise. Of course, these are the days before internet, where you couldn't just sit down at a computer and just type in, tell me everything the Bible says about grace, for example. He knew it by memory. He uh, also quotes uh, extensively from St. Augustine. St. Augustine himself is a pretty thorough and heavy-duty theologian. And he quotes from Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. And he, he weaves all this philosophy and all this scripture and theology into this one document. And because of that one document, and because it is so thorough, and even now it's, uh, it's kind of despised, uh, unfortunately, in some circles, but even now it stands as a monument to human thought, he often gets the, gets the name of being an egghead, an intellectual. Somebody whose heart really wasn't there, but he lived in his head. And that is a sad state. Because it is said equally, while he kept four uh, secretaries busy at the same time, when he came to a question that he didn't know how to answer, how to word it, how to, how to express it, when he came to a philosophical or theological question that he knew was centered to the faith, but didn't know how to express what it was, instead of doing what an intellectual does, an intellectual goes to his books and delves deeper and deeper. St. Thomas went to the tabernacle and he laid his head against the tabernacle. He sought to be one with Jesus Christ. He sought that union. Towards the end of his life, his secretary, who also became a saint, St. Reginald, uh, wrote that St. Thomas one day had uh, he heard St. Thomas talking, and he kind of peered in and noticed that St. Thomas was talking to the Lord, and he heard the Lord say to St. Thomas, you've written well of me, Thomas. Ask for whatever you want. And Thomas, in his profoundly mystical experience, responded, nothing if not you, Lord. St. Thomas had a deep communion with the Lord that resided in his faith. At the end of his life, leaving the Summa Theologica unfinished, he said, all that I've written is straw. He knew what we receive this day in this Eucharist causes everything. 
As beautiful as it is, as God-centered as it may be, and the Summa Theologica is God-centered, everything that we can do fails in comparison to what we receive at this Eucharist. So is it any wonder that at the same time as St. Thomas is writing, at the same time there's a development of an understanding of what, what really happens at this Mass? The term transubstantiation taking root at that time, not because suddenly the Church created this idea that the Eucharist became, or the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, but rather this is the process that helps us to understand. This is a word and a concept that helps us to understand how Jesus Christ could take bread and wine at the Last Supper and turn it into his body and blood, fully, completely, totally, that it changes substance, it changes its very existence. What it is changes, and even to say what is wrong, that it's who. The Eucharist is a who, not a what. It is Jesus Christ. So at the same time, the Pope recognized that there needed to be a feast to help us as Catholics to understand who the Eucharist really is, that it is Jesus Christ, that the Eucharist didn't spring out of a vacuum, that it wasn't created in the 10th century or 11th century or 12th century. It was kind of prophetic because 300 years later, that was a question that was being asked. Is the Catholic Church really correct in saying the Eucharist is Jesus Christ? So the Pope prescribed that we would have a celebration of this Corpus Christi, the celebration of the body and blood of Christ, remembering that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ. And who better to commission than St. Thomas Aquinas to write the prayers? And we might not know that he wrote them, but I guarantee if If we spend any time at all in the church, we might know one of them, down in adoration falling. That's right from his Corpus Christi Mass. Of course, we sing it on Holy Thursday. It's the last few verses of Ponca Ponca Lingua. The, The sequence that we just heard, shortened as it was today, is from him. And if I encourage you to go home and to Google it. We have that great capacity now. To go home and Google and read and pray the whole thing. And as you do so, you're going to notice, even though it's a translation, St. Thomas wrote in Latin. If you can read the Latin, I encourage you to do that. I can barely read it. It's beautiful. It's poetic. And it's rich. And it just drips with scripture. And even the portion we read, Isaac Bond, a victim willing. St. Thomas keeps pointing to the Eucharist that we have, that we celebrate, the Eucharist we receive, was prophesied, was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. That comes from his deep faith. Again, he points to Jesus as the, in the Eucharist as a who. Today in this gospel passage, we have the, the crowds, the Jewish crowds, asking, how can this man, how can Jesus give, him, give us his body and blood? It's repugnant to us, even yet, to think about it, if you think deeply, to eat human flesh, to drink human blood, even take a step back, to drink blood, period, no matter what it is. In the Jewish context, this was, this was 
to even touch blood was to become richly unclean. To touch dead human flesh is to become unclean. And not only to touch it, but there to consume, to eat. And if you read the, the later parts of John 6, you hear that many stopped following him. Jesus didn't go after them and say, wait a minute, you didn't understand what I was saying. I'm saying only figuratively. He let them go because they didn't understand that sacramentally they had to do this to have life, eternal life. They had to come to eat his flesh and drink his blood, not gnaw on his physical flesh, but the sacramental flesh that he was to give at the Last Supper. St. Thomas, understanding that there was something important in the Eucharist, reminds us too, and we will pray that this evening, not only do we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, but that when we do, there's three times that we remember. He gives, a, gives it to us as the antiphon for uh, uh, Magnificat, or a canticle of Mary. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Before that and after, we will say tonight, how holy is this feast in which Christ is our food. His passion is recalled. Grace fills our hearts. And we receive the pledge of glory to come. The Eucharist, when we receive him, ties us into the past, it ties us together in the present, and it ties us in the future. In the past, when we receive Eucharist, when we come to Mass, we're drawn back to Calvary. We stand at the foot of Calvary, which fulfills that Last Supper feast, which fulfills today's Gospel passage. That we recall his passion. And grace fills our hearts in the present day, fills our hearts and unites us with him. That's why we call it communion, by the way, to come together with. Not only do we come together with Jesus, it's not a me and Jesus, but it's a we and Jesus. That we're drawn together, we're made, as St. Paul, uh, St. John Paul II told us in the encyclical, that the Eucharist makes us the church. And sometimes we think we gather as the church and make the Eucharist. No. The Eucharist is Christ, and Christ makes the church, draws us together. But it's not only us. Today, it's not only us that, that are drawn together, but it's also with our bishop. It's also with the Pope. It's also with the people in Africa, the people in Asia, the people who are under persecution, who are worshiping in a private home for fear that they will be captured. And not only that, but we're worshiping and we're receiving the same Jesus Christ that St. Thomas Aquinas received, the same that the apostles received. And it gives us a pledge of eternal glory. But even more, and I encourage you to think about this, it, it blows my mind every time I think about it. When we come to the Eucharist, we're drawn together not only in past, not only present, but in a way, in mystery, you're gathering today with your great, 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 great grandchildren. God willing. I'm not going to have any. That's why I leave myself out. We gather with all the saints of all time. Isn't this a magnificent, magnificent thing? The saints understood that the Eucharist is what made them united to Christ. 
They understood this. Recently, I've come to uh, appreciate St. Solanus, or soon to be, hopefully, God willing, uh, but right now I guess he's just a blessed Solanus Casey. St. Solanus, or blessed Solanus, lived in, uh, I believe it was Hudson, Wisconsin. Pretty close to us, right? In fact, two of his brothers were priests, and both were buried in our diocese near Ortonville. Blessed Solanus came and preached the gospel, preached the uh, the funeral mass of his the first of his brothers to die. Saint Solanus had a sickness as a youth, and so uh, he had a very wispy voice. He didn't have a very beautiful voice for singing, but he sang all the same. And as much as he liked music, he loved to play the fiddle. His brother Capuchins didn't like it when he played the fiddle because he didn't play the fiddle very well. And so he would play it in, play it in private. Well, really not private. He would go to the chapel late at night when all the brother monks were asleep and he would squeal on the fiddle before the Lord. And there he found pleasure in the Lord. That the Lord found pleasure in him. Can you imagine squealing but knowing that you were pleasing your Lord. Or St. John Vianney, it is said, one day he witnessed a man who he had witnessed before coming in and praying. And he asked the man, he knew kind of what the man was doing, but he asked the man, Sir, what do you do? And the man simply said, I look at him and he looks at me. They all understood that what we have in our tabernacle, what we have, will have on our altar shortly, is not a what, it's a who. It is Jesus Christ. Our current culture, Catholic culture, is broken. Statistics tell us only 33% of Catholics believe what I just said, that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ. This is sad. This is really sad. Because if the Eucharist isn't Jesus Christ, how do we become the church? We live in a world that's so divided. These last two weeks, we've seen it divided even more so than even I ever thought possible. And we're trying to unite it on, on things that ultimately will never unite. The only thing we can be united by is God. Which is why... Jesus gave us the Eucharist. How holy is this feast in which Christ is our food? His passion is recalled. Grace fills our hearts, and we receive the pledge of glory to come.